Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, friends. Here we are again on the Bill Press Pod, Friday morning, May 28th, the beginning of the Memorial Day weekend, and time for this week's Roundtable. Looking back on the news of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. And what a busy week it's been. Donald Trump's legal woes worsened with news that the Manhattan District Attorney has convened a grand jury to look into possible criminal charges against the former president. But does it matter? With pressure from leader Mitch McConnell, all but two Senate Republicans so far have vowed to vote against creation of a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th insurrection. The White House announces a June 16 summit between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin, and Donald Trump prepares to hit the road again with a flurry of campaign rallies. Is this what the Republican Party really needs? What's it all mean? Well, here today with their insights, Maya King, joining us from Politico, politics reporter. Hi, Maya. Hi, Bill. Good to have you with us, as well as Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Editor for NBC News Digital. Hi, Ginger. Hi, Bill. Okay, and David Jackson, back with us from USA Today, National Political Correspondent. Hello, David. Hey, Bill, how you doing? Good, great, uh, thanks to you all. Uh, let's start with, um, as we are speaking, or shortly, in very short time, uh, the Senate will be voting on the January creation of the January 6th commission. Uh, Mitch McConnell, Republican leader, had some choice things to say in opposition just yesterday. I've been clear and unflinching in my own statements about January the 6th. But as I've also repeated, there's no new fact about that day. We need the Democrats' extraneous commission to uncover. So, Maya, we don't know what the exact vote will be, but with Mitch McConnell's opposition, it looks like uh, it's not going to make it, right? Exactly. Um, and we also have reports that he has reached out to his Republican colleagues in the Senate personally, asking them not to support the um, the. The, the vote here for this commission, which is obviously pretty frustrating for Democrats and even some uh, Republican moderates who really, you know, understand that the events of January 6th are for all intents and purposes in the past, but the fallout from it and the possibility of something like this happening again is enough to really scare a lot of lawmakers into really wanting to get to the bottom of this and making sure that th that, that doesn't happen. Uh, and Ginger, um, the, we heard a different voice uh, about the commission yesterday when President Biden, after a speech out in Cleveland, stopped at an ice cream store, <laughs> of course, for chocolate chip ice cream. Uh, but he was asked about this by one of the reporters there. Here he is. I can't imagine anyone voting against establishing the commission on the greatest assault since the Civil War on the, on the Capitol. But at any rate, I can't for ice cream. 
Uh, and Ginger, there was also an unusual uh, lobbying voice in the roaming the United States Senate yesterday and meeting with Republican senators, and that was the mother of the police officer Brian Sicknick, who was killed during the January sixth, but just January sixth insurrection. Despite her voice, it looks like again Republicans are going to go against it. Yeah, and I think really is sort of the most. Um, striking moment yesterday was Lisa Murkowski. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the lead up on Thursday night, the Senate decided to Senate and really sort of drag this um, into the early hours of the morning and then actually not vote. Um, I was up uh, past midnight watching the Senate floor, which is an all too common occurrence. But um, as they were sort of haggling over a bill on China uh, with this is the pending vote that just then didn't happen, uh, Murkowski came out and, and standing feet away from Officer Goodman, the man who um, probably saved a couple of senators from from running into the mob, um, she just really went after McConnell and said, this is political. You know, we can't be making decisions like this based purely on the next election. And I think they really removed all doubt that, like, when we hear McConnell saying, oh, we don't want to interfere with the FBI investigation, that's not really what's going on here. What's going on here is that a mob of Trump supporters attack the Capitol, and they don't want to remind voters next year when they get closer to the midterms that this was Trump supporters, that this was at Trump's encouragement, and that this was something that happened because of Republicans. Um, they would like voters to forget about that. Uh, now, Donald Trump isn't helping them let voters forget about that uh, by reminding people what he thinks about the election every day. Uh, but really, we're seeing another episode of the Republican Party uh, trying to to move in a way that they, they don't upset Donald Trump and they still think they can win elections in the future. Well, and that's the question, David. Is this the right move politically for Kevin McCarthy uh, and Mitch McConnell? Look, they're, they're demanding an investigation into the Wuhan lab where COVID came from, right? They were all behind an investigation into 9-11, but not this. Well, at one point, they were they were behind this January and February. They were yeah. talking about it, and you know, it's interesting. McConnell behind the scenes, McConnell's kind of been working against Trump the last couple of months, but on this thing, they're in alignment. I just think, uh, well, I think in McCarthy's case, he opposed it because he just doesn't want to testify about what his dealings with Trump on the day of, because as you mm-hmm. know, his story has changed. So he just doesn't want to go back there, and he doesn't want to be under oath to talk about wh- what he and Trump discussed that day. I think in McConnell's case, I think he's just made the sheer political calculation that there'll be no good, no, there's nothing good for Republicans in having this investigation conducted. So he's just he's just made the cold political calculation. There's more to gain from not having it than there would be from having it. And he'd rather take he'd rather take heat for opposing the commission than take the kind of heat that uh, would result from the commission's investigation. But David, let me stick with you for a second. A, um, a top Senate reporter yesterday told me that, look, if, if they don't get this, they're going to get a select committee, and that's going to be worse. I know. That's, and that's one thing I'm wondering about, too. That's my understanding is that um, they can go ahead and do a—the Democrats can go ahead and just create a select committee on their own. I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't really understand why they haven't gone ahead and done that, because that's probably where this is going to wind up. But you're right. I think it's— uh, I mean, it may be a short-term political victory for McConnell, but uh, it's not going to do him much good in the long term. Can I, I just say— Go ahead, Ginger, please. I think it was a bit of naivety about why they haven't done it yet. I think Pelosi thought 
she could get everybody on board a bipartisan commission that looked like the 9-11 commission, and it would be the gold standard. Look at someone who's covered select committees. You're right. They can just create it. But then they're forever viewed as partisan. They were created not with bipartisan. And and they thought they could come up with actual bipartisan cooperation and produce a report that would be unimpeachable because of that. And McConnell McConnell held his cards pretty close to the vest on this just until recently. So, and I think... You know, yeah. naively or not, I think he, I think he surprised some people. And he surprised me by the vehemence of his opposition to this thing. Yeah, he started out by saying, well, we could probably work with this. We have, we have a couple of amendments about staffing and that kind of stuff. That was one day. The next day he was <laughs> out full bore. Uh, right. Well, Maya, nobody seems to be more pissed off about this, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell, than uh, maybe, except for Lisa Murkowski, than Joe Manchin. So is Joe Manchin, the question of the day, is he pissed off enough to uh, agree to get rid of the filibuster? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, think, I, I think that's, I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, this is something that he's come out, you know, every, every time reporters ask him about this, I think his answer has largely been the same on this, that he doesn't have any plans to, to change or reform or, or get rid of it. And so, um, you know, there's always this, this looming question of what will it take but I'm not sure if this is if this is the thing that will actually push him over the edge here. I'm really not sure if this is something that he's really willing to compromise on at all. Aren't we leading to that? Uh, isn't it just in the cards that sooner or later there's going to come down to a showdown, uh, David, over the filibuster? It sure seems that way. But on, but as Maya just pointed out, Manchin seems pretty determined to keep it. So. I don't. Yeah. I don't think it's going to happen. And I'm. I'm wondering. I'm wondering if that. If this argument is going to continue the closer we get to election time, because it just doesn't look like Manchin or the the senator from Arkansas from Arizona, Cinema, are are willing mm-hmm. to budge on this issue. What do you think, Ginger's in the cards? It seems like Manchin and Cinema are going to do everything they can to keep that from happening. And look, the closer you get to an election, the closer you get to the reality that um, you might not hold the Senate forever. And if you get rid of the filibuster, um, it, it really isn't a debate about what you can do in the next year while you hold the Senate. It should be a debate about what could Mitch McConnell have done the two years that he held the Senate and his party held the House and the White House, um, because that inevitably is going to happen again. And I think that that's what Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema are thinking when when they push back at this. Right. Uh, meanwhile, let's uh, jump to uh, former President Donald Trump and the legal news this week uh, that uh, his um, legal troubles worsened when Cyrus Vance Jr. announced that they have convened a grand jury now after an, uh, this stage of the investigation into alleged criminal activity on the part of the Trump Organization and Donald Trump himself. This goes back to 2018. And now they have eight years of Donald Trump's tax returns. The announcement of the grand jury, Maya, uh, is this a big deal? Absolutely. Uh, and I think that it it really points to the fact that they are pursuing um, possible criminal charges here. I think that's really the big takeaway from um, from this announcement is that uh, the former president is really facing some serious, um, probably not jail time, but 
you know, some serious charges. And it, it just begs the question of really what was going on, not only while he was in the White House, but even before he was elected. And I, we know we've seen reports that those in his inner circle have actually started to become much more nervous about this and really understanding uh, that the stakes are pretty high. I don't think we'll have a final answer here for several months, but just the fact that this is opening and taking the shape of um, a very high profile criminal case against a former president, that in itself is enough, I think, to raise a lot of eyebrows, not just in Washington, but in New York, too. Uh, and Ginger, we know this isn't the only legal front that Donald Trump is facing, right? There's a, a second criminal investigation by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James. Uh, there's a criminal investigation underway in Georgia uh, looking into Trump's alleged interference in the election process. And there's still this sexual assault case uh, in Superior Court in New York, which is a civil case, not a criminal case. Um I guess uh, he's hiring a lot of lawyers, Ginger, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and to be clear, the, the Letitia James investigation is likely in um, cooperation with the Stuy Vance investigation. And mm -hmm. it is unlikely, given the structure of how the New York criminal system works, that we would see her sort of seek any type of charges separate. I mean, it's just not the way that they're that the the prosecutions happen in New York. Um, but I have no doubt. I mean, Donald Trump is facing... Um, a lot of legal pressures and a lot of different angles. And I think that we see, I mean, you know, we don't, he doesn't have a Twitter, but a lot of us, probably everyone here is getting his, his press releases on a regular basis now um, that sometimes resemble things we thought he probably would have wanted to tweet. Um, and I think it's clear that he's going to make himself out to be a martyr, um, that he's going to say, look, I was a great president and I did all these great things. And what do I get in return? I get politically uh, right. viciously attacked and and so to some degree the more uh he faces in a court system the better he can argue that it's unfair and it's just them trying to pile on him um and and, and stop him uh from running again so so david is it possible that a former this former president could face criminal charges and maybe even prison time Oh, that's definitely a possibility. I mean, I don't think there's much doubt that Cyrus Vance is seriously looking at at charges against the president. And there's, there are also indications that the folks in Georgia are serious about their investigation, which may even be a bigger legal problem for Trump mm -hmm. because it would directly involve his conduct during the post-election period. But uh, Well, so uh, I was intrigued by your article, uh, David, in USA Today, where you talked to a lot of Republicans who um, you put that possibility in front of them. And they told you, um, so what? Basically, right. wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, have any effect on Republican chances in 2022 or 2024. Right. Yes, I was asked to, 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 to do just that. And basically, the question is, well, if Trump is indicted, what does it do to his political career? And many Republicans and many people around Trump and, and supposedly Trump himself have said nothing. If anything, if he's indicted, it'll just only encourage him to want to run more in 2024 that in as, as Ginger said, just to portray himself as a martyr who's being uh, targeted by the swamp and unfairly dragged into court. So it's uh, it wouldn't be, you know, it, it's not out of the realm of possibility that an ex-president under criminal indictment will try to run again for the White House. It's totally unprecedented, but it wouldn't shock me if that's the way it plays out. Well, it may not it may it may not cause some of those Republicans who are now supporting him, uh, particularly uh, members of Congress or state legislatures to 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 back to break from Trump but what about republican voters maya i mean would this play well with the republican suburban electorate 
Well, I think it honestly, uh, the way that I'm looking at this, especially through the 2022 lens, this is all going to be about messaging and whether or not Democrats are going to be able to translate what's happening to mm-hmm. voters and to to voters in these battleground states in particular. Not just to you know blanketly say the president is is or the former president uh, is facing criminal charges, but that the former president ran you know real estate ventures that uh, could potentially have been extremely corrupt while he was in office, while he, while your taxpayer dollars were funding um, the job that he was supposed to be doing. I think that's the message that Democrats have to hammer home for it to really be able to make a difference in terms of votes and just in the minds of voters. But I think, you know, on the flip side of that, of course, we have um, the president and his allies that still plan to uh, do rallies and still plan to kind of get the pro-Trump message out there that they hope drowns out, I think, this sort of um, moral high ground that Democrats might be going after. Well, yes, I'm glad you you mentioned rallies. So, Ginger, we've seen some reporting this week. There's no doubt Donald Trump wants to get out there. He loves that, right? Uh, out there in front of the crowd talking about 2020, the election was stolen from him, and he plans to get out there again with a mess of, a string of rallies starting um, next month, which is right around the corner. Uh, but we've seen some reporting this week that even Republicans who support him say maybe this is not the best idea. What do you hear? Yeah. I mean, think about the last four years where every Republican in Washington has had to pretend that they didn't know what Twitter.com was because they didn't want to respond to the things that the then President Trump was writing there. And now they're going to have um, to, you know, reporters running after them with clips of the latest thing he said at a rally, um, like the election was stolen and I, I'm really the president now and whatever else he's been currently writing and emails to the press. I mean, I think that it is, it, it is, it, we, we should not proceed any further without, and I think David mentioned this earlier, but just really hitting the fact that this is so outside of our political norms, right? I mean, press presidents would show up maybe the weeks before a midterm and give a couple of stump speeches for candidates in tough states that were really just sort of sweeping and not in any way what we are seeing from Trump and what we are going to see from Trump. Um, and, and Republicans are, are terrified about what he's going to say. They're terrified about what it's going to do. And, and look, he lost, right? So, um, we know that a majority of Americans don't want him in charge. And when Democrats are want nothing more than to run against him again in the midterms, and if he's out there on the stump on a, on a weekly basis, um, that's not going to be hard for them to do. And I think, um, that's a calculation lots of people are making. They would rather say they really love Trump, the Republicans, but not actually have to deal with him being there. And David, uh, every time you're on, we come back to South Carolina. <laughs> uh, so Lindsey Graham, your senator from South Carolina, has said, you know, 2022, it's, it's going to be all about the future. We want it to be about the future. So <laughs> can it be about the future if Donald Trump's in South Carolina holding no. a rally talking about 2020? No, although I, I, when Lindsey said that, you know, one of the interesting things about this gig right now is you, I've, I've talked to a lot of Republican voters and my colleagues have talked to a lot of Republican voters who say that, who insist that Trump does not run the party. They still like Trump, but they, they don't, you know, they're not committed to him in 2024. I think there's a lot of unease throughout the party about what Trump is doing. And at, at some point it's going to manifest itself. You know, as far as the rallies, you know, we, we already have something scheduled. Trump is going to address the convention of the North Carolina Republican Party on uh, Saturday, June the 5th. 
I'm wondering mm. if he thinks that's a that's a rally because uh, that will be an apparent. It'll be tele. It'll be open press. It'll be televised, and I'm sure he's going to be ranting and raving about a lot of things, even though it's in a staid convention-like setting. I think he may regard that as as kind of a rally. Another thing about these things is we were supposed to get a rally in May, and we didn't. And I can't help but wonder if they're worried about getting a crowd and 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 how it would go and. Mm-hmm. Just what it would be like. So I, I think they've had they've been hesitant to pull the trigger on a specific rally, the kind of rallies we're used to, and uh, I think that includes Trump himself. So I, th- I think there's a lot of concern even within the Trump camp as to how this is all going to go out. Uh, so that's June five. That's next Saturday, right? Right. Week from wow. Saturday. Yeah, it's, it didn't get a lot of publicity, but uh, they schedule it. Originally, they scheduled it as a closed press event, the kind of thing that he had at, at Mar-a-Lago back in April with a bunch of Republican donors. But it's uh, it's the Republican North Carolina State Republican Party convention, and he's going to keynote it on Saturday night. And and now they've declared it open press, so there'll be a lot of media there. All right. Hey, uh, we've covered a lot of the territory, but still a lot more happened this week that we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, we'll pick up there uh, after a quick pause here on the Bill Press Pod and be back with uh, today's roundtable with Maya King from Politico, Ginger Gibson from NBC News, and David Jackson from USA Today. Today's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the good men and women of the Teamsters Union, making up the largest and the most diverse union of all American labor unions. Uh, They represent everybody from truck drivers, of course, to vegetable workers in California, construction workers in Las Vegas, and bakery workers in Maine. Uh, Teamsters have also been big, always big supporters of progressive media and progressive talk radio particularly, and progressive podcasts uh, under President Jim Hoffa. Uh, And we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod and their good work across the country, Rebuilding America. Check out their website at teamster.org. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back on this Friday, May 28th. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Our roundtable, David Jackson joining us 
from USA Today, Ginger Gibson, NBC News Digital, Maya King uh, with Politico. Um, there is some um, uh, other activity in the House of Representatives this week. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, made a little news and shook a few people up uh, when she suggested uh, in a speech that forcing people to wear masks was like forcing Jews to wear a yellow star uh, in the early days of the Nazi regime. Uh, even Kevin McCarthy had to condemn her for that, uh, those remarks. But Maya, beyond that, McCarthy did nothing. Why hands off on Marjorie Taylor Greene? I think one, because she represents such a large uh, swath of the base and that she has, you know, the power to kind of stir the, the, the spirit of voters that Republicans still need. But also, I mean, this is nothing new in the pattern of, of Republicans just really, really being reluctant to condemn and call out the uh, um misbehaviors, I guess, of members of their party. I mean, this is the same party that, um, as Ginger pointed out, really pretends like they don't know what Twitter is and haven't seen tweets when the president says, you know, like Stokes um, mm -hmm. <laughs> insurrections. So it's it's really not surprising as egregious and um, and and awful as, as Green's comments were and are, as she continues to kind of lean into this, that, that even though McCarthy... Um, issued a, a much more full-throated, I would say, rebuke of, of these comments that it didn't outright um, result in, in her expulsion from um, the Republican conference or, you know, any real um, disciplinary action yet. Uh, and she's not alone in um, stirring things up. There's also Congressman Matt Gates, who is also under investigation for other reasons. Um, but he made some comments recently about uh, the Second Amendment, which um, get close in my in my view, uh, to being as outrageous as anything Marjorie Taylor Greene said. Here's Congressman Gates. The Second Amendment is not about it's not about hunting. It's not about recreation. It's not about sports. The Second Amendment is about maintaining within the citizenry the ability to maintain an armed rebellion against the government. An armed rebellion against the government. Uh, Ginger, it sounds like he's calling for another January 6th. I mean, you can uh, look at the roots of the Second Amendment and have a lot of discussions about why uh, that was put there and why the Founding Fathers drafted uh, that amendment. But I think that in the context of the moment and what happened and what is happening in America, um, Matt Gaetz was saying something very specific that wasn't a uh, originalist constitutionalist constitutional argument, right? Um, and so I, I think that... Um, People are rightfully going to be shocked. I, you know, it's just we've reached this point. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Matt Gates, they say these outrageous things and people sort of go, oh, none of that really matters. None of it really matters. They just say these things that they're just talking to the Newsmax audience. Um, but, you know, we saw polling this week that said, you know, a, a majority of Republicans think that Donald Trump is actually the president right now. So some of this does matter. And and I think that Maya's point, too, about why leadership isn't doing anything is is pretty accurate. They think that these people speak to a portion of their of their base. Um, and I don't see it changing anytime soon. Hmm. Uh, and David, I guess for McCarthy, it's really all about how many votes he needs to become speaker, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, that's that's all he's cares. And the vote, he, 
the Republicans want the Trump voters. They don't necessarily want Trump, but they certainly want the Trump voters. <laughs> and they fear if they do something about even the extremists within their parties that they're going to lose a chunk of those voters. So that's the that's the deal with that. By the way, you know, Gates is, is talking about running for president in 2024. I don't know if you caught that or not. He says that he'll run in 2024 if Trump doesn't. So and I think in terms of the Gates situation, he, it's all about he's just getting ready to defend himself against what looks like a, a, a sure, surefire criminal charges. So that's uh, that's where he's coming from. As far as Marjorie Taylor Greene, I, I think Republicans tell me that, uh, well, you know, we, we've had a lot of right wingers in our caucus before and they've talked about certain names. But I, I honestly think that Taylor Greene is something different. I mean, she's way out there and it's, it's something I think even by the standards of uh, right wing populism, she's something unique. And I think it's something Republicans are going to have to deal with sooner or later, probably before the election next year. Right. Uh, big announcement this week of a summit, the first meeting between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin, June 16 in Geneva, um, with a long list of items that they say they're going to cover. Uh, including um, uh, election interference and including uh, Russia's interference in eastern Ukraine. I guess, Maya, all we know is that um, uh, Putin's going to be treated a little differently, maybe, by Joe Biden than he was by Donald Trump. Is that a safe assumption? <laughs> I think that's more than safe. Absolutely. And that's really what I'll be looking at is just the context of this meeting. Um, you know, obviously, the approach that Biden has taken to Putin has been night and day compared to that of, of, of former President Trump. I mean, he referred to Putin as a killer at one point. Remember that kind of scary back and forth when Putin said that he wished the president, President Biden, good health, as if to suggest that perhaps he was like mentally unfit. Um, mm -hmm. And that's just kind of the small petty stuff. That's to say nothing of, um, you know, the recent uh, colonial pipeline hack that, um, you know, folks have suggested was that Russian hackers are behind that. Um, which I think they will, I imagine they will also have to cover. And I think really President Biden's objective here is sort of trying to reestablish, um, you know, he's always talking about trying to reestablish America's place in the world and its standing. And I think one of the big steps here for him um, in Biden's mind is also reestablishing this kind of um, adversarial relationship with Russia to, to say, you know, that we can absolutely work together, but we are by no means friends here. And so, um, you know, going into this meeting, it, it, it just really will be interesting to see how these two interact and really what comes of it. Um, if anything, if we can look at anything substantial um, that we could actually quantify here and, and have some takeaways in terms of the real relationship now between the United States and Russia. Yeah. And Ginger, I guess the expectations are not too high for anything um, substantive to come out of this, but um, just a chance for the two world leaders to meet. Hmm? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's always a chance that you don't need much time for a president to make a point or a foreign leader to make a point or for them to leak to us afterwards that they said something in the meeting that um, was particularly biting or um, uh, falling in the, any other number of categories. Look, and I think it's important to remember that as we watch Biden, you know, post pandemic or sort of as we get out of the pandemic, uh, emerge onto the world stage in a, in a face to face matter manner, which he's not been able to do, um, his first few months in office. I said, the man 
chaired the Foreign Relations Committee um, and was sort of the leader of foreign affairs on the Senate for a very mm-hmm. long time um, and knows a lot of these people and has interacted with a lot of these people and has had these type of high-level meetings before. Um, so this is a place where he's, he's very comfortable. Um, and, and I think that's going to show in the way we see him interacting uh, both on camera and off as he starts to have FaceTime with world leaders. Right. Uh, uh, David, I think that's a good point, right? That, I mean, this is Joe Biden's going into this with a lot more experience than anybody else recently as president of the United States has done. Certainly more experience than Donald Trump, but more than Barack Obama or George W. Bush. Yes. I, I, the thing that's always struck me is how eager Biden has been to want this meeting. I'd, mm-hmm. I really, I'd, I'd love to know what his real reason is for wanting to talk to Putin face to face. This is opposed to wanting to, needing to talk to President Xi Jinping of China face to face. I just can't help but think there's an ulterior motive here, I, but I have no idea what it is. Yeah. Um, so I want to come back to where we started, actually. Um, uh, not just the uh, debate over the January 6th commission, but there's also the debate over an infrastructure bill, over a police reform bill, over a voting rights bill, on, and on all of those items, um, uh, people are still holding out the promise of a bipartisan uh, agreement. Let's just go around the table here. Is that real or not? Is there any hope for bipartisanship with the given gang of Republicans and Democrats in the Senate? What's your take, Maya? Um, I, I mean, my short answer, I'm, I'm really, really drawn to no, I think, is is my answer. But I think it depends. Like, um, folks that I've talked to around police reform have been particularly optimistic that this group of bipartisan uh, legislators will actually come out with some kind of a, a bill that um, pleases Democrats and Republicans, who and it Tim, won't please, Tim, likely, right. is— Tim Scott in charge of that for the Republicans. Yes, yes, Tim Scott for the Republicans, Cory Booker and Karen Bass for Democrats. Those are the folks who are really in these conversations. Um, And, you know, everyone is saying that they're entering into them in good faith and that they really do want to try to come out with something. But the folks I think who will be the the least pleased here will be the activists and the folks who actually created the political will to get these people to sit down at the table together. So it's like there are limits of bipartisanship as well in that, you know, if there is Mm -hmm. a a viable police reform bill here, what will it actually accomplish on voting rights and, um, and on, you know, infrastructure? I, I don't, I I think that really, um, the most optimistic, uh, outcome that I could imagine is just very, very watered down versions of, of what Democrats actually came in with. Uh, and Ginger, some people are saying that given that Republicans can't even support the January 6th commission, that's proof that they're not going to compromise or agree to anything. I I don't think I think that we could watch last night on the Senate floor on Thursday night and see that there is the ability for Republicans and Democrats to compromise on something. I mean, that China bill is a bipartisan effort. And look, like it got blown up by Ron Johnson at midnight because he wants a border wall um, doesn't mean that they're not going to eventually, it looks like, get to 60 votes. To pass mm-hmm. a pretty large and substantive piece of legislation, I, yep. I think that um, January 6th and the state of America is why Joe Manchin wants them to get to some type of deal 
very badly on infrastructure. He wants the United States Senate to be able to say, look, we did this thing and it matters to you and it affects your life and we're building a bridge for you, literally. Um, and, and if that means that it's a $200 billion package, I think um, he views that as worthy of the time of the Senate that, it, you know, might called it watered down. Um, I think Joe Manchin would call it substantive and something, but they got somewhere and did something. Um, because they, he just desperately wants to be able to say to America, um, we're not broken. Um, and maybe if, if they can't get to some type of agreement, um, that proves the opposite of his statement. I don't know, but, um, he's, he's making an effort. Uh, so, David, I want to get your take on bipartisanship, too. But first, uh, this came up in a funny way yesterday uh, with the president out in Cleveland. Um, we're giving a speech at the end of the speech. Uh, he pointed out uh, about all these Republican. He did not get one Republican vote for his first attempt at bipartisanship, the stimulus package. And then he pulled out a list from his pocket right. of 13 Republicans who did not vote for the stimulus package, but are going around now taking credit for every all the good stuff that's come to their district because of it. Here's the president having a little fun with this. Even my Republican friends in Congress, not a single one of them voted for the rescue plan. I'm not going to embarrass any one of them, but I have here a list. <laughs> of how back in their districts they're bragging about the rescue plan. I mean, some people have no shame. <laughs> <laughs> so, David, is this the new definition of bipartisanship? You vote against it and then take credit for it. <laughs> well, well how, but how long has that been going on? You know, people will vote against something and then take credit for the good parts of the bill. But I, I was, you know, the, the White House and Democrats have been talking about this phenomenon for weeks. I was surprised at the timing of what Biden did, pulling out the list and all that. And it made me wonder if he's getting ready to just cut the Republicans loose and just try to do just to try to do things on their own, even with their bare Senate majority. Um, I wasn't I've been expecting Biden to, to, to pull this move for a while. I was just surprised he did it yesterday in the midst of these sensitive negotiations over the commission and the infrastructure bill. And like I say, I, I just I wonder if he's if he's just getting ready to, to cut bipartisanship loose. Uh, he may be, but also, uh, if he thought by doing so that he could embarrass any of these Republicans, I think no, he was no. just kidding himself. That, that's that's an impossible task. Okay, a lot going on this week. I think we've covered most of it. Thanks so much uh, to our panelists, Maya King, Ginger Gibbs, and David Jackson. Uh, before we let you go, there must have been some story this week, as busy as you were, that caught your attention, made you stop in your tracks for just a, a couple of minutes. What was your favorite story of the week, we call it. Maya, you want to start us off? Sure. Um, the story that I really enjoyed came out yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, and it's about, um, I'm not sure if you all are familiar with the show Schitt's Creek, about the very wealthy oh, yeah. family. <laughs> yes, that bought a town and finds themselves uh, having to live there. Well, there is a real-life Schitt's Creek in California in the Mojave Desert, about an hour away from Las Vegas, um, it's on sale for a little less than $3 million <laughs> because a wealthy couple is like really, really trying to get rid of it, but they just simply can't because it's, you know, a nothing, like there's just not a lot yeah. there and it's in the middle of the desert. So it was just a fun read, you know, about, about this family um, that owns this town and kind of the parallels between the show. And I, I, <laughs> I wish this couple all the best of luck in their attempts to sell um, this town in, uh, in the Mojave Desert. 
but you, you don't make any plans to uh, make an offer? <laughs> I will need about uh, 2.9 million more dollars before I'm able to. I don't know. It sounds like you might be able to get it for a lot less than 3 million. Yeah. No, you know, I've heard about that town before, never been there, but uh, certainly in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Ginger, uh, what was your favorite story? The story I just cannot get enough of and will not be able to get enough of going forward is the story, the ongoing story, the evolving story of UFOs, um, oh. whether or not they are coming for us. Um, are they been here? Are we spotted them? Or that video that we have or Barack Obama mm -hmm. basically just told us that we don't know where they come from. Uh, but I think that my colleague Daniel Arkin did a great story that I highly recommend if you're interested in UFOs. He talked to a bunch of the directors and producers and writers behind some of our favorite science fiction, including the X-Files and Men in Black, um, about what they make of this moment right now, where it looks like we're going to get this report in the Senate yeah. from uh, intelligence about UFOs. Um, and they're not very optimistic that if we did, in fact, spot a, an extraterrestrial life force, um, that they would be friendly to us. They actually think that we're probably in for a world of trouble, but uh, maybe not, and hope springs eternal. And it's a great read if you're, like me, waiting with great anticipation for this report uh, whenever Marco Rubio uh, tells us that it's here. Yeah, this report is coming before on UFOs is coming before the United States Senate uh, next month, I believe. Right? It's supposed to, but Rubio has warned us that they're they're a little concerned it's going to be late. They don't think it's going to be on time, but it's oh, supposed to. It's supposed yeah. to come. Uh, and Harry Reid had a lot to do with getting this report going. Right? This investigation Harry going. Harry Reid has been a long advocate for further exploration of um, life outside of Earth and UFOs. But if you weren't aware, this report, the specific report that's going to be coming from um, our intelligence community, was squeezed into mm -hmm. an earlier COVID bill that Trump signed. Um, right. So, yeah. uh, it's, its genesis is a little unusual, too, but uh, we're going to find out maybe something more. I, they could just be spy planes, right? It could just be the Russians spying on us. But, um, <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? I can't wait. Can't wait. So, David, uh, back to Earth here. Uh, <laughs> your favorite story? story? Um, yes. Well, the Washington Nationals announced that their stadium will be oh. back at full capacity on June the 10th. So, all right, we'll be able to have full crowds. We've we've had some games, but the crowds have been limited, and it just hasn't been the same. But after June the 10th, we'll be able to you know pack the place. All the concession stands will be open and. It'll be another sign that life is finally re returning back to normal after a, a pretty difficult 14-month period. Oh, that is good news. Yeah, they were uh, in town this week and, right. um, you know, maybe 5,000 people in a 40,000 stadium, right? right. So, yeah, it's, right. It's, yeah. Well, uh, so I got to tell you my favorite story of the week is a story from the uh, New York Times. Uh, first of all, I want to read the headline um, of the story, and it is this. See, this is a pandemic COVID story. Actually not, but a health public health story. Okay. Headline, CDC warns, stop kissing and snuggling your chickens. <laughs> now I saw this and I thought, wait a minute, they buried the lead here. The lead is that there are people who actually kiss and snuggle their chickens. It's just another uh, attack on South Carolina, Bill. <laughs> there's, there you go. <laughs> and what it says here, that there's a salmonella outbreak linked to backyard poultry 
and it's spread because people are kissing or snuggling their ducks and chickens. Honest to God, I never thought of that as even. They're great pets. Come on. They're, yeah, they're, but... they're snuggly. They're covered in feathers. They're like a pillow. Uh, uh, now, wait a minute. Dogs, <laughs> yes. Cats, yes. But lizards, snakes, chickens, no. I don't think you kiss and snuggle them, but they say it's beak to lip um, <gasps> transmission Bill, get, from this salmonella. So so much reader feedback from people about their their chickens that they love well, to snuggle. So. Uh, okay, keep your back guard, chickens, but don't, don't kiss and snuggle them is my plea, and the plea of the CDC as well, anyhow. So there you go. Uh, David, a reflection again on South Carolina. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks so much, Maya King from Politico, Ginger Gibbs, and NBC News Digital, David Jackson, USA Today. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you all for listening. Invite you to be sure and tune in next Tuesday for our next podcast, uh, interviewing Edward Isaac Dover, good, uh, Dover, I'm sorry, a good friend of uh, all of ours, and his new book out called Battle for the Soul. It's a Democratic, inside the Democratic uh, campaigns to take on Donald Trump in 2020. It's a great book for all of us political junkies. It's a really good read. And we will be uh, talking to him next Tuesday on the podcast. Uh, and meanwhile, nothing left to you but to have a great Memorial Day weekend. Stay strong, stay safe, come back and see us on the next Bill Press Pod. Thanks, guys. See you later.